Section 12 of The Wit of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Scano. The Wit of Women by Kate Sanborn. Chapter 10 Parodies, Reviews, Children's Poems, Comedies by Women, A Dramatic Trifle, A String of Firecrackers. It is surprising that we have so few comedies from women. Dr. Duran mentions five English women who wrote successful comedies. Of these, three are now forgotten. One, Afra Ben, is remembered only to be despised for her vulgarity. She was an undoubted wit and was never dull, but so wicked and coarse that she forfeited all right to fame. Susanna Sentliv left nineteen plays full of vivacity and fun and lively incident. The bold stroke for a wife is now considered her best. The Bassett Table is also a superior comedy, especially interesting because it anticipates the modern blue stocking in Valeria, a philosophical girl who supports vivisection and has also a prophecy of exclusive colleges for women. There is nothing worthy of quotation in any of these comedies. Some sentences from Mrs. Sentliv's plays are given in magazine articles to prove her wit, but we say so much brighter things in these days that they must be considered stale platitudes as, You may cheat widows, orphans, and tradesmen without a blush, but a debt of honor, sir, must be paid. Quarrels, like mushrooms, spring up in a moment. Woman is the greatest sovereign power in the world. Hans Andersen, in his autobiography, mentions a Madame von Weissenthen, who was a successful actress and dramatist. Her comedies are published in 14 volumes. In our country, several comedies written by women, but published anonymously, have been decided hits. Mrs. Verplank's Sealed Instructions was a marked success, and years ago, Fashion by Anna Cora Mowat had a remarkable run. By the way, those roaring farces, Bells of the Kitchen, and Fun in a Fog were written for the folks' family by an aunt of theirs. And I must not forget to state that Gilbert's Palace of Truth was cribbed almost bodily from Madame de Genlis' Tales of an Old Castle. Mrs. Julia Shayer of Washington has given us a domestic drama in one act, entitled Struggling Genius. Struggling Genius, Dramatis Personae, Mrs. Anastasius, Mr. Anastasius, Girl of Ten Years, Girl of Eight Years, Girl of Two Years, Infant of Three Months, Act One, Scene One, Nursery. Time, 8 o'clock a.m. In the background nurse making bed, etc. Girl of two, amusing herself surreptitiously with pins, buttons, scissors, etc. Girl of eight, practicing piano in adjoining room. Mrs. A. in foreground, performing toilet of infant. Having lain awake, half the preceding night wrestling with the plot of a new novel for which rival publishers are waiting with outstretched arms, full of checks, 
Mrs. A believes she has hit upon an effective scene and burns to commit it to paper, washes infant with feverish haste. Mrs. A. Soliloquizing. Let me see. How was it? Oh, Olga raised her eyes with a sweetly serious expression. Harold gazed moodily at her calm face. It was not the expression that he longed to see there. He would have preferred to see. Good gracious, Maria, that child's mouth is full of buttons. He would have preferred, preferred, Leonora, that F's too sharp. There, there, mummy's sunny boy. Did Mama drop the soap into his mouth instead of the wash bowl? There, there. Mm -hmm. There's a land that is fairer than this, etc. Infant quiet. Mrs. A. Resuming. He would have preferred, preferred. Maria, don't you see that child has got the scissors? He would have. There now, let Mama put on its little socks. Now it's all dressed so nice and clean. Don't key. Now don't he. Leonora, put more accent on the first beat. Harold gazed moodily into. His bottle, Maria. Quick. He'll scream himself into fits. Exit nurse. Baby, having got both fists into his mouth, beguiles himself into quiet. Mrs. A. Let me see. How was it? Oh, Harold gazed moodily into her calm, sweet face. It was not the expression he would have liked to find there. He would have preferred, shriek from girl of two. Oh, dear me. She has shut her darling fingers in the drawer. Come to Mama, precious love, and sit on Mama's lap, and we'll sing about little pussy. Enter nurse with bottle. Curtain falls. Scene two. Study. Three hours later. Infant and girl of two asleep. House in order. Lunch and dinner arranged. Buttons sewed on girl of eight's boots. String on girl of ten's hood. And both dispatched to school, etc. Enter Mrs. A. Draws a long sigh of relief and seats herself at desk. Reads a page of Dickens and a poem or two to attune herself for work. Seizes pen. Scribbles erratically a few seconds and begins to write. Mrs. A. After some moments. I think that's good. Let us hear how it reads. Reads aloud. He would have preferred to find more passion in those deep, dark eyes. Had he then no part in the maiden meditations of this fair, innocent girl, he whom proud beauties of society vied with each other to win, he could not guess. A stray breeze, laden with violet and hyacinth perfume, stole in at the open window, ruffling the soft waves of auburn hair which shaded her alabaster forehead. It seems to me I have read something similar before. But it is good anyhow. Harold could not endure this placid, unruffled calm. His own veins were full of molten lava. With a wild and passionate cry, he... Enter Cook, bearing a large dripping piece of corned beef. Cook. Please, Mrs. Anastasia, is this the kind of peace you done wanted? I thought I'd save you the trouble of coming down.
Mrs. A. desperately. It is! Exit cook, staring wildly. Mrs. A. resuming. With a wild, passionate cry, he... Re-enter cook. Cook. Ten cents for the boy. What put in the wood? Please, ma'am. Mrs. A. gives money. Exit cook. Mrs. A. sighing. Takes up M.S. Clock strikes twelve. Soon after the lunch bell rings. Voice of girl of ten calling. Mama, why don't you come to lunch? Scene three. Dining room. Enter Mrs. A. Girl of ten. Oh, what a mean lunch. Nothing but bread and ham. I hate bread and ham. All the girls have jelly cake. Why don't we have jelly cake? We used to have jelly cake. Mrs. A. You can have some pennies to buy ginger snaps. Girl of ten. I hate ginger snaps. When are you going to make jelly cake? Mrs. A. sternly. When my book is done. Girl of ten. With inexpressible meaning. Hmm. Curtain falls. Scene four. Study. Enter Mrs. A. Children still asleep. Girls at school. Deck again cleared for action. Mrs. A. It is one o'clock. If I can be let alone until three, I can finish that last chapter. Takes a pen. Lays it down. Reads a poem of Mrs. Browning to take the taste of ham sandwiches out of her mouth, then resumes pen and writes with increasing interest for 15 minutes. Everything is steeped in quiet. Suddenly, a faint murmur of voices is heard. It increases. It approaches, mingled with the tread of many feet and the rumbling as of many chariot wheels. It is only Barnum's steam orchestrion, Barnum's steam chimes, and Barnum's steam calliope, followed by an array of rough scruff. They stop exactly opposite the house. The orchestrion blares. The chimes ring a knell to peace and harmony. The calliope shrieks to heaven. The infants wake and shriek likewise. Exit Mrs. A. Curtain falls. Scene 5. Study. Enter Mrs. A. Peace restored. Children happy with nurse. Seizes pen and writes rapidly. Doorbell rings. Cook announces caller. Nobody Mrs. A wants to see, but somebody she must see. Exit Mrs. A in a state of rigid despair. Scene 6. Hall. Visitor gone. Mrs. A starts for study. Enter girl of eight, followed by girl of ten. Duetino. Girl of ten. Mama. Please give me my music lesson now, so I can go and skate. And then, won't you please make some jelly cake? And see, my dress is torn, and my slate frame needs covering. Girl of Eight Where are my roller skates? Where's the strap? Can I have a pickle? Please give me a cent. A girl said her mother wouldn't let her wear darn stockings to school. I'm ashamed of my stockings. You might let me wear my new ones. Mrs. A gives music lesson, men's dress, covers slate frame, makes jelly cake and a pudding, goes to nursery, and sends nurse down to finish ironing. Scene 7. Nursery. Mrs. A with babies on her lap. Enter husband and father 
with hands full of papers and general air of having finished his day's work. Mr. A. Well, how is everything? Children all right, I see. You must have had a nice quiet day. Written much? Mrs. A. Faintly. Not very much. Mr. A. Complacently. Oh, well, you can't force these things. It will be all right in time. Mrs. A. In a burst of repressed feeling. We need the money so much, Charles. Mr. A. With an air of offended dignity. Oh, bother! You're not expected to support the family. Mrs. A. Thinking of that dentist's bill, that shoe bill, and the summer outfit for a family of six, says nothing. Exit Mr. A., who re-enters a moment later. Mr. A., you, uh, haven't fixed my coat, I see. Mrs. A., with a guilty start. I, I forgot it. Gibbering fiend conscience. Ha <laughs> ha, oh ho. Curtain falls amid chorus of exulting demons. I have reserved for the close numerous instances of women's facility at badinage and repartee. It is there, after all, that she shines perennial and preeminent. You will excuse me if I give them to you one after another without comment, like a closing display of fireworks. And first, let me quote from Mrs. Rollins. As an instance of the way in which women often react upon each other in repartee, a little conversation which is once her privilege to overhear. Margaret, I wonder you never have been married, Kate. Of course, you've had lots of chances. Won't you tell us how many? Kate. No, indeed. I could not so cruelly betray my rejected lovers. Helen. Of course you wouldn't tell us exactly, but would you mind giving it to us in round numbers? Kate. Certainly not. The roundest number of all exactly expresses the chances I have had. Charlotte, with a sigh. Now I know what people mean by Kate's circle of admirers. A lady was discussing the relative merits and demerits of the two sexes with the gentleman of her acquaintance. After much bandinage on one side and the other, he said, Well, you never yet heard of casting seven devils out of a man. No, was the quick retort. They've got them yet. What would you do in time of war if you had the suffrage? said Horace Greeley to Mrs. Stanton. Just what you have done, Mr. Greeley, replied the ready lady. Stay at home and urge others to go and fight. It was Margaret Fuller who worsted Mrs. Greeley in a verbal encounter. The latter had a decided aversion to kid gloves, and on meeting Margaret, shrank from her extended hand with a shudder, saying, Oh, skin of a beast! Skin of a beast! Why, said Miss Fuller in surprise, what do you wear? Silk! said Mrs. Greeley, stretching out her palm with satisfaction. Miss Fuller just touched it, saying with a disgusted expression, Ugh! Entrails of a worm! Entrails of a worm! Mademoiselle de Ma, the former favorite of the Théâtre de Francais, had in some way offended the garde de corps. So one night, they came in full force to the theater and tried to hiss her down. 
the actress, unabashed, came to the front of the stage and alluding to the fact that the garde corps never went to the war, said, What has Mar to do with the garde corps? Madame Louis de Ségur is daughter of the late Casimir Perrier, who was Minister of the Interior during Thiers' administration, when once out of the office, but still an influential member of the House, he once tried to form a new moderate Republican Party, meeting with but little success. Once his daughter, who was sitting in the gallery, saw him entering the house all alone. Here comes my father with his party, she said. I was greatly amused at the quiet reprimand given by a literary lady of New York to a stranger at her receptions, who, with hands crossed complacently under his coat-tails, was critically examining the various treasures in her room, humming obtrusively as he passed along. The hostess paused near him, surveyed him critically, and then inquired in a gentle tone, Do you play also? A young girl being asked why she had not been more frequently to the Lenten services, excused herself in this fashion, severe but truthful, Oh, uh, doctor is on such intimate terms with the Almighty that I felt the troll. At a reception in Washington this spring, an admirable answer was given by a level-headed woman, we are all proud of Miss Cleveland, to a fine-looking army officer who has been doing guard duty in that magnificent city for the past seventeen years. Pray, said he, what do ladies find to think about besides dress and parties? They think about the heroic deeds of our modern army officers, was her smiling reply. Do you remember Lydia Maria Child's reply to her husband when he wished he was as rich as Croesus? At any rate, you are king of Lydia. And Lucretia Mott's humorous comment when she entered a room where her husband and his brother Richard were sitting, both of them remarkable for their taciturnity and reticence. I thought you must both be here. It was so still. In my own home, I recall a sensible old maid of Scotch descent with her cosy cottage and the dear old-fashioned garden where she loved to work. Our physician, a man of infinite humor, who honestly admired her sterling worth and was attracted by her individuality, leaned over her fence one bright spring morning with a direct question. Miss Sharp, why did you never get married? She looked up from her weeding, rested on her hoe handle, and looking steadily at his hair, which was of a sandy hue, answered, I'll tell you all about it, doctor. I made up my mind, when I was a girl, that, come what would, I would never marry a red-headed man. And none but men with red hair have ever offered themselves. We all know women whose capacity for monologue exhausts all around them, so that the remark will be appreciated of a lady to whom I said, alluding to such a talker, have you seen Mrs. lately? No, I really had to give up her acquaintance in despair, for I had been trying two years to tell her something in particular. A lady once told me she could always know when she had taken too much wine at dinner. Her husband's jokes began to seem funny. Lastly, and finally, there is a reason for our apparent lack of humor, which it may seem ungracious to mention. Women do not find it politic to cultivate or express their wit. 
no man likes to have his story capped by a better and fresher from a lady's lips what woman does not risk being called sarcastic and hateful if she throws back the merry dart or indulges in a little sharp shooting no no it's dangerous if not fatal though you're bright and though you're pretty they'll not love you if you're witty madame de stael and madame recamier are good illustrations of this point the former by her fearless expressions of wit exposed herself to the detestations of the majority of mankind she has shafts said napoleon which would hit a man if he were seated on a rainbow but the sweetly fawning almost servile adulation of the listening beauty brought her a corresponding throng of admirers it sometimes seemed that what is pronounced wit if uttered by a distinguished man would be considered commonplace if expressed by a woman parker's illustration of choate's rare humor never struck me as felicitous thus a friend meeting him one ten degrees below zero morning in the winter said how cold it is mr choate well it is not absolutely tropical he replied with the most mirthful emphasis and do you recollect the only time that wordsworth was really witty he told the story himself at the dinner gentlemen i never was really witty but once in my life of course there was a general call for the bright but solitary instance and the contemplative bard continued well gentlemen i was standing at the door of my cottage at rydale mount one fine summer morning and the laborer said to me sir have you seen my wife go by this way and i replied my good man i did not know until this moment that you had a wife he paused the company waited for the promised witticism but discovering that he had finished burst into a long and hearty roar which the old gentleman accepted complacently as a tribute to his brilliancy the wit of women is like the airy froth of champagne or the witching iridescence of the soap bubble blown for a moment's sport the sparkle the life the fascinating foam the gay tints vanish with the occasion because there is no listening boswell with unfailing memory and capacious notebook to preserve them then unlike men women do not write out their impromptus beforehand and carefully hoard them for the publisher and posterity and now dear friends a cordial au revoir my heartiest thanks to the women who have so generously allowed me to ransack their treasuries filching here and there as i chose always modestly declaiming against the existence of wit in what they had written to various publishers in new york and boston who have been most courteous and liberal credit is given elsewhere touched by the occasion i dropped into doggerel if you pronounce this book not funny and wish you hadn't spent your money there soon will be a general rumor that you're no judge of wit or humor end of section 12 recording by mary escano end of the wit of women by kate sanborn